Hey everybody, this is Zach. I am here apologizing to you because I didn't put together a 10 and 2 for you this week because of the illness that everyone with children has right now. But here is a great conversation that Jib had recently for our randomly reoccurring series, 22nd Century Leadership, which starts out with Jib introducing our guest while simultaneously seeing how many times he can say faith in one minute. Enjoy. Our guest today is Fletcher Harper, an Episcopal priest who is executive director of Green Faith, an international interfaith environmental organization. Guided by the belief that people grow spiritually through a strong relationship with the earth, Fletcher has been a leader in bringing people of faith to environmental activism for over 15 years. He coordinated the Our Voices campaign, which mobilized religious support globally for COP21, led organizing of faith communities for the People's Climate Marches in New York City and Washington, D.C., helped lead the faith-based fossil fuel divestment movement, supported the launch of the Global Interfaith Rainforest Initiative, and co-founded SHINE, a faith philanthropy NGO campaign to end energy poverty with renewable energy by 2030. Most recently, he's working on Green Faith's new local organizing initiative, creating multi-faith green faith circles in local communities around the world. Fletcher has accepted Green Faith's Many Faiths, One Earth Award from the UN Secretary, General Ban Ki-moon, and is an Ashoka Fellow. He is the author of Green Faith, Mobilizing God's People to Protect the Earth, and he is an alumni of Blue Sky's Annual Confluence, an intimate two-day meeting of sustainability leaders on a rafting trip down the wild and scenic Tuolumne River here in California, which is where I first had the pleasure to meet him. Fletcher, welcome to the podcast. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So um, Green Faith's mission is to inspire, educate, and mobilize people of diverse religious backgrounds for environmental leadership. Could you uh, describe a little bit about your personal trajectory into this position as executive director and why and how you've made this your life's mission? I was a uh, parish priest in northern New Jersey for 10 years back in the 1990s and had initially gone to seminary because I really cared about and admired the way that people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and, and others had um, made their, their religious and spiritual leadership all about the engagement of uh, public issues in the religious space, moral space. And I had always been an outdoors person, um, liked to camp and fish and hike, and um, 
there wasn't really much going on in the religious space around that back in the 90s, and it kept on feeling like there was something missing for me. And I got an opportunity to uh, do some work with Greenface's predecessor organization as a volunteer, and it was at the time not easy. This was back in the late 90s, very early 2000s. It was not easy to get the attention of, of religious and spiritual communities around climate and environmental issues, but I totally got the bug, and um, one thing led to another, and I had a um, sort of an experience where I realized that this was where a lot of my passions in life came together, my passion about a really strong and lively spirituality and faith, and a real commitment and, and love for and appreciation and passion for the earth. So it, it came together, and it's, it's it's been 15 years now, but that was the uh, that was the start. It came very much out of a deep, personal, spiritual sense of calling for me. And so, over these last number of years, what what do you see for you personally that has been, what's the greatest detriment in the religious paradigms that you encounter, the different religions, and what are the greatest um, assets to to the work you do? I would say in terms of the, you know, the biggest challenges, some of them are, you know, theological and some of them are just really practical. On, on the theological side, religion, you know, and this is true for a lot of religions, um, have this habit of, of thinking of, you know, the sacred God, whatever you want to call it, as being somewhere beyond the earth. Um, and that's obviously not true for pagan and indigenous traditions, but for, you know, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, Hinduism. I mean, Hinduism, to some degree, has a strong environmental theology that's integral to it. But for a lot of traditions, there's this sense that God is, is out there beyond the earth somehow. Um, and that, that's not helpful, um, because if, if, if God is not connected to the earth, then why should people of faith and spirituality care about the earth? So that's, then on, on the practical side, I think part of it is that, um, you know, despite appearances, a lot of, of religious communities are um, struggling to survive. Uh, you know, we, we see these images of, at least in the U.S., powerful evangelical churches, and I think it creates the impression that, that that's the norm in the religious community. It, it's not. Um, and so there's a practical thing in terms of when you're dealing with institutions that have very limited time and resources, how do you get them to take on, a for them, a brand new topic that requires some new learning and some new skills? So that that's tricky. Um, and then I think the other piece is that religious environmental issues too often, from our perspective, get get framed as if they're separate from human issues. And this, I think, was something that Pope Francis did really, really well in his encyclical where he said, you know, we don't have an environmental crisis and a social crisis. We've got one crisis, and it, it encompasses social and environmental issues together. And I think that in too many religious people's minds, there's this dividing line between uh, the environment and people, and and we've got to we've got to you know we've got to we've got to dissolve that wall. Yeah, no, I, I as you um, 
you said all that, what, what reminded me is the work that we do inside companies, which obviously are not religions, but they have cultures and they have ways of being um, as a community, um, serving whatever markets and whatnot that they, that they serve. And it's the exact same thing, uh, getting people's attention, getting, getting people to really understand that this is integral to what they do and how they do it in light of how busy or the challenges that they're facing is, is very, very common. In fact, it is the big, I would say the biggest barrier. It's not the, the logic or the rationality. Um, there's enough data and enough uh, on, on all sides that poor environmental and social practices um, do not help deliver better economic returns and vice versa that when the companies that that are leading in these sorts of practices they actually are are tend to thrive and so you know 10 years ago 15 years ago uh, that wasn't there wasn't much data on this and now there is but nonetheless uh, getting people's attention can be can be challenging and so uh, but I am interested in this in this notion of how somehow, I think within the environmental movement, my, my experience is that we, we have done a disservice by not connecting the value of nature, the value of biodiversity, the value of these things to thriving human communities and society. So, so tell me, Tell me more about how you are, how you go about bridging that with communities of faith and, and you know, how it's working. Yep. I mean, what, what we find is that as a starting point, it's, it's really important to start with an exploration, affirmation, expression of gratitude around the earth um, and I and I say that to sort of counter the what we see as a, 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 a frequently used approach within the environmental community which is to start from the perspective of a problem a challenge a threat and I don't I don't mean to be Pollyannish I mean we know we know the threats are real it's more a question of what energies are you going to try to mobilize within the communities that we're working with? And we find that that starting with an acknowledgement of, you know, to use the religious language, this incredible gift or blessing that we've received, that none of us have done anything to create. It's It's got beauty. It sustains our lives. It's the basis of, of all of what we do. Um, and we find that by starting there, we can empower people to root their concern around these issues um, in something that, that's deeper than politics and in something that's deeper than, or that at least is deep enough that it can reckon with their politics and it can reckon with their perceptions around their economics because it's, it's got depth and it's, it's spiritually unarguable. And then we, you know, we, we think that, um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, there are issues about 
um, this being a very, very fundamental um, moral responsibility, um, trying again to establish that as a, a foundation. We find that once people have, ex have, have affirmed that the earth is a gift, it's not that hard for them to take the next step and say, well, you know what, of course it's our responsibility to, to take care of this gift. Um, and, and that, I mean, it's extremely simple what I'm saying, but we find that, that truly getting people to connect with that dual recognition is, is really, really fundamental. And the thing is, and then, and then, you know, other themes that we see that work in terms of the, the messaging and the, the narratives that we find really do work to engage, um, we find that when we talk to people about the fact that things are out of balance, um, that, that that resonates. People have a sense, again, that they can affirm that uh, things are out of balance regardless of their, of their politics um, in relationship to the environment because it's reasonably obvious that they are. Um, and then we talk also about the importance of, of waking up. Um, you know, all spiritualities and religions have placed a pretty high value on whether they call it enlightenment or awakening or, or you know, some sort of coming to consciousness. And so we, we find that, you know, it's a gift, it's our responsibility, things are out of balance, and we have to wake up. I mean, this is, that, that, that kind of narrative arc um, works well, we found, in a, a pretty wide variety of, of religious and spiritual contexts. And you obviously can then inflect that, that narrative with teachings from the appropriate tradition. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd have to say that, that those are the, the teachings, the affirmations that we find are, are the ones that resonate deeply. Yeah, no, that uh, that makes that makes good sense. I mean, the the focus how we how we launch these podcasts um, and what we call them is leadership in the twenty second century, which comes from uh, eco philosopher you may know him, Arnie Ness, yeah. um, who when asked, "Are you an optimist or pessimist about the you know the future of humanity and the future of life on Earth?" He answered, uh, an optimist when it comes to the 22nd century, you know, saying <laughs> basically that, you know, it was going to be a kind of a rough go in this century. And uh, but he had he had he had faith um, that we would come through it more enlightened, much more connected to each other and and the natural world. And so. Um, you know, kind of building on your your framework, what are the qualities that you see in leaders, be them secular or or faith based, in the work that you're doing that that really works? Like, what what is it about leaders who are the most effective that you that you see? Uh, again, as, as Kind of practically, like that really works to mobilize people to to get people to wake up to to get people to to act consistent with uh, these values. You know, I'm I'm going to use a word that's going to sound very religious, but I mean it if it's possible in its secular sense, which is that we see that when people have faith that these issues matter, 
and that there are solutions that are possible, if that's a huge piece of the picture. It's, it's uh, most of the religious leaders we work with, they, they don't deal with the environment or climate issues even 10% of the time. I mean, they're, they're juggling a lot of different balls, as I'm sure most of the business leaders you're working with are. And, you know, it, they, they don't have either the luxury or the inclination to, to have this be their primary focus. Um, in that context, what we find as they're trying to work with the institutions that they serve is that as leaders, if, they're, if they demonstrate uncertainty about whether these issues matter or uncertainty about um, their belief that there are solutions to these issues, that, that's a big issue. That undermines all of the other stuff that they do. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, the, it sounds funny, but the first thing we want the religious leaders that we work with, the first quality we look for is do they have faith? Um, mm -hmm and, you know, faith in, in this stuff. I think then there's a second piece, which is do they have the, do they have the skills to, um, to build a team within their institution that is a strong team um, around getting the environmental challenges done? So it's, you know, it, I mean, it can be in religious institutions, it can be stuff that's as simple as how do you take, you know, an old, you know, um, antique facility, basically, which a lot of religious buildings are, and how do you really get serious about reducing its carbon footprint? And you, you can't do that without buy-in from some important members of the congregation. And so we look for leaders who, and we, the, the leaders that are successful that we see, they are good at, at they have good relationships with the um, leading members of their congregation, they're able to go to those people and to talk with them about prioritizing this, and then they're able to identify how to build a team to, to get the job done. So I think that's, you know, that's another piece. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that, you know, I, I don't think that religious institutions are unique with these needs. This is sort of, you know, how do human organizations work? Um, I think the third thing that, um, that we look for and that we find is we need, you know, passion matters. Um, and we also need, uh, we find that it's, it's useful to have a, a religious leader who's got a combination of, of moral passion, but also a little bit of a sense of humor. Um, I mean, because we're dealing with system changes that have to be so big, there's an unavoidable perversity to life as it exists now in relationship to the environment, because we're all stuck inside of these systems that, that are really environmentally destructive on some level. And if all you've got to deal with that is a simple kind of moralism, you're going to kind of drive yourself over the edge fairly quickly and become boring because all you're doing is, is sort of moralizing at people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need people, we need leaders who can manage nuance and who can modulate between passion and challenge and encouragement and support. And I think, you know, being able to... to you know, think I'm thinking of a, a mixing device in music. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to work the dials well in in concert with each other. So, so who specifically are your mentors and heroes in this regard? So, you know, I, I'll, I'll mention a couple. Um, one is that, and he's he's dead now, but a, a, a writer, a Catholic theologian named uh, Thomas Berry who some people know because his, his work reached a, a, 
an audience beyond the, the religious world. Um, he was one of the first authors who really um, got the, the revolution to our understanding of ourselves um, that it meant if we really took, from a religious perspective, modern science and the environmental crisis seriously. And he was willing to do some thinking and, and writing at a very fundamental level about what did it mean to work with these old religious traditions and look at them through a genuinely ecological set of lenses. So he was, you know, he was one person. I think in terms of institutional leadership, it's, it's almost impossible not to mention Pope Francis because he's gone into, a, you know, arguably one of the most challenging institutions in the world to, to change. And he's, um, by dint of, you know, very hard work, um, real skill in terms of how to frame environmental issues and just mm -hmm. a real gift in terms of, of writing and speaking. He's, um, you know, he's, he's really, with the encyclicals that he wrote, I think that's one of the most consequential pieces of environmental writing of the last 50 years, um, just because both of the audience that he's able to reach, but the way in which he framed the issues um, in relationship to the economic system, the cultural belief system, politics. And that's not to say that I agree with everything that's in there, but the way that he, he takes it all on, I think, is really galvanizing and challenging. Well, perhaps, um, you know, for, for our listeners, you could summarize some of the key points uh, that you see as making it that significant a piece of work. I think that what he does is he, he, he connects the way in which we treat the environment and the mindset that underlies that with the way in which too often we have come to think about people, I and mean, he uses the phrase throwaway society, and he applies that both to, to the environment and to uh, people and communities that are poor or marginalized. And he's, you know, obviously dead set against that, and he speaks about um, the importance of a, you know, a sort of genuine reawakening of, of, human, of humanity in, in relationship to that. Um, he talks very challengingly about um, the economy and the, and the way in which the economy that, that all of us participate in, a, in an economy that, that commodifies just about everything and what is a way to reclaim some kind of uh, you know, validation that of human dignity and ecological dignity in the face of that. How do we do that? And, and he doesn't always have the answers, but he poses the questions in really challenging ways. Um, so I, I think those are a couple of the, um, you know, a couple, of, and, and he talks very frankly about the, you know, he told, writes about the ecological debt of the, of the global north in terms of the way that our cultures in the north have, have taken resources from the earth and used them, and, and benefits have come from that. Um, but those benefits have accrued to certain parts of the human family and, and most definitely not so much to others. So it's, you know, I, I, there's a intelligent prophetic voice that he puts out there that I think is is really critical yes I um, as you know Fletcher I, I recently read uh, the encyclical and I I was amazing it, it was in, incredibly 
easy for me, who I am not a, uh, a religious person, um, but it was very easy for me to follow and read and uh, the logic and the, the, the reference, which I found quite in- interesting, going back and forth between faith, religion, morality, and science and, you know, just more mundane facts of how things work in the world. Um, I found, you know, really it was, it was an impressive piece of work, as you said, and I encourage everybody to pick it up. It's not a long book and it's, it's not, uh, it's not inaccessible at all. Um, so, so a slightly different point, which uh, I don't even know exactly how to frame the, the, the question, but, you know, if you look historically, a lot of the, certainly the, the human um, conflict with other humans and the human conflict with, let's just call it nature, has come out of a worldview that was was supported, if not uh, outright, you know, uh, part of a religious worldview. And I know that you're an interfaith. Your orientation is kind of interfaith, kind of cutting across uh, all different religions. How do you, how do you see that reconciling the fact that you know so many of the world's bloodiest and and wars for instance have been fought for religious ideas how how can we reconcile all of these these seeming contradictions or paradoxes yeah and, and sometimes paradox is a nice way to there's a nice word for it frankly um, you know it's i mean i think that i think that that religion today faces a real fundamental challenge um, i think religions are at evolutionary moments where it it no longer suffices just for them to um, do what they've done and say what they've said in the past. I think that we're at a time where um, there is where religions are going to need to find ways to evolve. Um, you know, I won't say past. Uh, their their tribalism because I think that everybody's inescapably tribal in in one way or another, but rather to a more open kind of tribalism, so that instead of being so you know sometimes laughably and sometimes violently threatened by people or things or ideas that are different, um, that there's just a willingness to embrace the world in all of its complexity and wonder, I think on a real concrete level, um, what it means is that more than ever, we need strong progressive uh, religious leadership that values religious teachings um, and that's also, you know, that's got one foot planted solidly in the best of what these traditions have to offer, which is considerable. And I think, you know, that was one of the things that was good about the encyclical, for example, is that it, it, it served as a reminder that there was a lot of rich thinking and a rich moral and human vocabulary around what it means to be a human being that, that religions 
are the custodians of. And if that language can get used well, that's a real help. Um, but I think I think it's a real you know I I think it's a real I, I think it's a real put up or shut up moment for for religions where if they and that's that's why we do the work that we do I mean we think that it's vital for religions to to grapple with these issues to speak to the 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 challenges the dangers and the opportunities that the environmental crisis represents and to make it both inspiring and clear why we have to respond. Otherwise, I think religion, you know, is going to. I, I think there's going to be an accelerating decline um, for religion. So I, I think it's a. I think we're in a consequential couple of generations for organized religions right now. That's great. Well, so uh, tell us a little bit also just about more specifically what what you're working on now, and and what you see, you know, kind of as the pathway to this, this, if this is an existential moment for religion and religions around the planet, you know, what, what are you working on today very tangibly? And then what, what do you see as the kind of the path forward the next five to 10 to 20 years? So I'll, I'll, I'll give three brief examples. Um, one is where we're working with religious groups on how they use their their money in relationship to the environment and climate change. So what that means specifically is we've been very involved in the fossil fuel divestment movement. And you mentioned earlier that you know today is the day that the city of New York has announced that it's divesting its its pension funds um, from the fossil fuel industry. We we've been very involved in getting religious denominations, congregations, seminaries, um, faith based schools to to divest from the fossil fuel industry, and we're now increasingly focusing on working to get them to invest their assets, which are not inconsiderable, into climate solutions, particularly in energy-poor regions of the world. So there's a billion people on the planet who lack access to modern forms of electricity, and, and we think that it's a big part of the religious community's role to make sure that, that Within those communities, the groups that are the hardest to reach, um, you know, the poorest rural communities, that we work with religious investors to figure out how those communities can get access to renewable energy. So that, that's one piece is looking at the question of, of faith communities and, and money, um, because faith communities collectively are, the, are, I believe, the third largest class of investors Globally, so it's uh, you know there's there's there are some resources there that need to be deployed. So that's that's one piece. A second piece that's that's new for us um, is that we are collaborating with uh, the UN and with uh, a, a, a growing number of indigenous uh, organizations, indigenous communities around educating and training, and then mobilizing religious leaders in in five countries, Peru, Colombia, Brazil, and then Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the world's largest remaining rainforest preserves are located. And as as your listeners know, those those rainforests are incredibly important in terms of uh, of a whole host of environmental issues, biodiversity, climate change, um, and they're under grave threat. Religious leaders have never really come together and worked the political and economic and relational systems in their countries to try to do what they can to, 
to protect those forests. And so we're we're at the early stage of an initiative with the UN called the Interfaith Rainforest Initiative, which is designed to educate and train religious leaders in those countries and then get them connected with the strong indigenous and activist campaigning work that's going on and, and also to use the relationships that they've got with um, leaders within their own congregations to, to go to work on that. And then the, the third thing that I'll mention is really our, our, our long game. Um, five, ten years ago, it, this, this issue, these issues of environmental concern weren't word on the radar screen of religious institutions. Now they are. Things have changed. The Paris negotiations changed things. Pope Francis, as I mentioned, and other world religious leaders have spoken out. So now religious communities are, are aware that the environment is an issue. Religious groups do a lot of their really strongest work locally, where they come together as a real force globally to fight hunger, to build and develop affordable housing, to provide job training, to provide substance abuse, rehabilitation opportunities. I mean, faith groups in many ways do a lot of their best work locally. And we think that needs to be true about the environment. And so we're creating a, a local multi-faith organizing platform that we're just launching now at the, and developing what we call green faith circles in different places around the world where in a community or in part of a city or in a couple of adjacent towns, interested, concerned people of faith who care about the environment come together. They build that relationship network that, that enables them to go to their congregations and act together, whether it's on a local advocacy thing or, you know, on local solarized campaigns or, uh, you know, local advocacy in terms of approaching uh, city leaders around certain pollution regulations or, you know, the, the, the number of things they can do is, is that there's a large number of things they can do. What matters the most is building that relational network, um, which is where, I mean, that, that's the capital and the strength that religious communities have locally, and we want to see that deployed to protect the environment. So we've got, it's very early stage, we've got green faith circles in Delhi, India, in Colorado, in New York, in New Jersey, we've got uh, early stage um, in Indonesia. Um, so we're we're and and also in uh, in Brazil. So we're we're just at the start with that. But that's that's our our long term plan. We believe that really building that network out is is what's going to bring the the power of the religious community to bear um, as much as possible. Wow. Well, it, you know. It's always exciting for me to to catch up with you, Fletcher, and and hear about all of this because you know it's going on. It, to know that you're out there doing these things, uh, and when I listen to your activities and what you're doing, it makes perfect sense. Uh, at the end of the day, you know. I often say we don't have a sustainability problem on planet Earth. We have a, a, a mindset or a, or, or a people problem. Um, and, and it is going to take uh, really people at scale all over the world to begin to wake up to the self-interest associated, and I mean self with a capital S, uh, associated with being in relationship with other people, being in relationship with our communities, being in relationship with, with the trees and the animals and 
and life with a capital L. And so uh, I, I, I really appreciate your uh, work and spending some time with us. And um, uh, to close, maybe, you know, as you look towards the next few years, what, what gives you the most hope? Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, obviously, that's not so good. But what do you see that's going on that you go, this is exactly the thread that is going to lead us down the right path? You know, I'll, I'll, as we've started the, the local organizing, the Green Face Circle organizing work that I mentioned, what, what I've seen there has, been, has given me a lot of hope because what we're seeing is that when we go into these congregations and start working with people, all of a sudden people start coming out of the woodwork who have not previously been engaged around environmental concerns, and this is uh, an avenue through which they can become engaged. And so what, what gives me hope is that I have now seen on a pretty consistent basis more and more people stepping forward and saying, this is me and the time is now. And, you know, that, so that, that to me is, that, that to me matters because we're, like you said, we're going to need, uh, we're going to need everyone on this one. And it, it feels, you know, it feels like a gift and very gratifying to be able to play our role in terms of, creating some of those opportunities for folks to to get involved great well thank you so much fletcher and uh carry on well thanks thanks to you and we're we're grateful for your work too jib and always always good to talk with you take care bye-bye